Okay, we're back on the Edlow podcast. Nate Christensen, part two. How are you doing, Nate? I'm good. How are you, Josh? I'm good. 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 It was funny because I wasn't planning when we first when we first talked. I, I wasn't thinking we were going to do two, but we got so like there's so many interesting things about your story and your work as a therapist that uh, when when you when you had your heart out, I was like, we can't stop. We gotta we gotta go. This is too important. This stuff is really important I, to me. It's important because. I have family members who, who have been addicts in the past, and uh, I know I have the addiction gene. I know a lot of f- friends who've dealt with addiction and dealt with other things as well, um, some of the, the mental health issues you've talked about, and then also just, uh, you know, life. Uh, all of that is complicated, I think, by the, by, our, um, by the fact that we're involved in a high-demand religion like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which kind of compounds what probably you already have when it comes to to shame involved with these. It's compounded by this moral compass that you have based on this religion that you have. And so, so I'm, excited, I'm excited we were able to make this work so we could do the two-part series one right after the other. Yeah, or, or maybe people are going to have a little bit of uh, Nate fatigue. They're like, oh, I've heard enough of this guy. <laughs> no, no, it's really interesting. It's fascinating because you, what, one thing that's great about you in, in a story like this that's different than other people is that because of your work as a mental health professional, you can kind of explain what's going on in the brain for you and anybody else more so than like if I hear, like I just did a podcast with a guy who, who dealt with addictions in his life. And it's helpful to hear that there are people who have addictions and recover and are doing well. But to understand what's actually happening inside while you're doing it, I think is a, a next level uh, help, you know. Sure. Um, but before we go into that, you we were talking off air before I hit record and you were telling me you felt we, we had a little bit of a discussion about uh, the judgments of others. Particularly, you mentioned projection uh, in judgment and you felt like you left that incomplete. And what do you mean by that? Well, I think that that if someone were to listen to that, they might just assume, um, and maybe rightly so, because it, it was incomplete, um, that my view is that we're just projecting our own judgment. Um, I, I do believe that we happen to live in a judgmental world, um, so I want to acknowledge that. I do believe that people are judged heavily. I also believe that maybe some communities it might be more prevalent than others. And and so the fact that perhaps I haven't felt that judged doesn't mean that other people haven't been judged. Um, I, I had one very interesting experience when I was um, trying to remember, probably in my mid thirties, I was sitting down with um, with a bishop that, that I was working with. Um, do you hear the echo? I don't, I don't hear an echo. Let me, let me see if I can fix that for you. Hold on one sec. Hmm. Go ahead and talk. Okay. For some reason, you, I was getting feedback. I don't know. If I I think it's cleared up now. I think it might have been. It could have been my headphones. Okay. Well, keep going and and tell and let Sorry. me know if you if you hear something. Uh, it up now. Okay. Let me let me do one more thing real quick. Does that did that make, talk now? Do you hear any echo now? Uh, let's see if I can hear any echo now. Nope. Okay. All right. All right. I trust that we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've had some. I've had some. I've had some where I've 
where I've listened to it afterwards and I'm like, that was not coming through when I was talking, you know, uh, to the person. So let's, let's hope there's nothing going on because this is an important. Topic, okay. So, so yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, so I had this really interesting, interesting experience with the bishop. I'd been, you know, addict for 15 years or whatever it is. And, um, and we're sitting there and, and I, I think he was really frustrated. I'd experienced a lot of love and openness and curiosity. Oh, I'm still hearing it. Let me, <laughs> I don't know what that yeah. is. Yeah, I don't either. Let me see if I can fix this and see. Um, maybe that'll help. Go ahead and go ahead and talk and see if that fixed it. Okay. okay. Can I hear? Can I still hear my echo? Don't hear it. Okay. I think I fixed it. All right. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so I'm sitting with this guy, and this was a unique experience because I I had not experienced this before. Um, the church leadership that I had worked with had been very compassionate and very patient, um, and and you never know what's going on in somebody's life, or you know, heck, you might not even know. Maybe he was inspired to say it. I have no idea. But we're sitting there, and uh, and he says, you know, if you don't get this beat, you're going to go to hell. And I was like, wow, okay, well, whoa, <laughs> there, whoa, whoa, there, Captain. <laughs> and. There, and the thing that was interesting was about it was that his eyes kind of got big, and I think he was surprised that it came out of his mouth because mm. he backtracked a little bit. And he was like, he was like, what I mean is like, if you get this beat, like nothing will stand in your way. You you just like, but this you know this thing is so big, mm. and and I left his office feeling pretty um, overwhelmed and and sad and discouraged. Uh, however, and and I think I was a little bit angry too. You know, I just I'm a human being. I just felt how I felt. Um, However, I've never forgotten it, and I've thought about it from time to time. So it clearly has impacted me, and I'm not mad about it now. I'm, I, I think that, that maybe it was inspired to say that, because in truth, nobody had said that to me. I think I knew deep down, but I didn't want to confront that fact that, that if I didn't figure this out, um, all of the cascading behaviors that come with addiction we're, we're going to be a serious um, stumbling block to, to my own salvation. So, yes, judgment happens. I haven't experienced a lot of it. Perhaps perhaps someone has been judged a lot, and that sucks because I, I don't think that's the intent of, of Christ's teaching. Um, but perhaps it's, it's more about us. Maybe we're not getting judged that much, but it's more fear of being judged or we're projecting that judgment because we might be more judgmental than we ideally should be. So, so there's nuance to the conversation. I just wanted to kind of wrap that up because I was worried that if somebody just heard what I said, uh, which was all, which was pretty um, all or nothing, they might have been like, okay, I'm done with this guy because he doesn't get it. No, no, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up. And I think that is an important point. The interesting thing about judgment, though, I think, um, yeah, like I said, like judgment to me, again, this is this is just it's hard for me sometimes. I don't know if I'm just wired differently than other people, but um, the judgment of others hasn't I don't think it affects me as much as it does other people. You know what I mean? Like I just. I don't know. It, it just doesn't seem to me to be as big of a deal. Of course, I want to be liked. And of course, I want people to think that I'm a good person. And I do want people to think, you know, hold me in, in, in higher regard, you know. But if somebody has a problem with me because of things that I've done in the past, uh, that's a them problem as opposed to a me problem. 
You know what I mean? So, sure. but I, I don't know. I don't know how you, it's, it's interesting because I, I just actually had a conversation with another person who I'm, his podcast will probably be released after yours. We were talking about this mindset and just the amount of things that we let us, that we worry about that in the grand scheme of things is really not that big of a deal. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And also like how we almost, um, we let that judgment of others keep us in places that are probably not super healthy sometimes, you know, like, like people pleasing and mm-hmm. living a life that you think other people want as opposed to authentic life. And, you know, I think that that's, that's all things that uh, I think if more people kind of let go of the idea that other and accepted that people are going to, some people you just, you're not, they're not going to like you. And, and there's nothing you can do about that. I think that's helpful to be helpful. Yeah, I, I think it is too. I think a lot about um, in, in the Book of Mormon, the story of uh, Lehi's vision where Nephi was partaking of the fruit and then the people in the great and spacious building were mocking them. And, yeah. uh, and he said, we heeded them not. Like those that stayed, like they just, they just didn't listen, you know? I mean, not to say maybe they didn't have feelings about it, but they did their best to ignore the fact that somebody was poking fun at them or calling them names or whatever they were doing in the dream. Um, but to them, partaking of the fruit was far more important than somebody's opinion of them. Well, yeah, and I, and I think another part of that that's so interesting is the people, it also references the people who, because they were ashamed of being made mm-hmm. fun of, let go of the rod and then started walking around in a mist of darkness not yeah. knowing where they were going, or ended up in that building and started my, mocking other people too. And yeah. I think that's really interesting if you think about it. <clears throat> and I think that that does happen, where like people get judged and they feel bad, and then somehow they become judges themselves, uh, which is, you know, it's hypocritical. And, and like I said, I mean, I think I, I think I said this on the last podcast, everybody judges I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you ha- you really have to, It's in some ways, right? Like if you're, you know, you have to make a snap second judgment call based on generalities at times. If you're in a worse neighborhood than another neighborhood, you might act a little differently than you would another one. That's a judgment of what's going on. You know, if you, if you walk by somebody and you don't know them and they're wearing, wearing a certain type of clothing and they're bigger than you and they're holding their arms and you know, in a way where they might be holding something and you're, you know, you're a young female walking by yourself in a bad neighborhood, you got to make a judgment call, <laughs> you know, sure. uh, just to, just to stay safe. So we all have judgments. It's just, it's just important to not, not let that, uh, you know, turn into gossip and things of that nature. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I perceive that the ego would much rather judge other people than itself. So oh, 100%. It's a defense mechanism for not looking inward because that can be terrifying. So. It's really interesting, too, when I, when I talk to people, um, and particularly people who I know seem to have narcissistic tendencies, it's really funny to listen to them uh, in, in, when they're dealing with their circumstances. And, you know, if you're an objective observer and you've watched the whole thing from both sides and you hear their story, 
uh, and you're like, yeah, but you like I I I had one um, person that I know I, I won't share obviously who they are, but I've had this a couple of times where, you know, someone stepped out on their spouse and uh, and made some mistakes, you know, and then it resulted in a bad marriage or or, or divorce or something. And you'll talk to them and sometimes you'll get, you'll be like, well, you know, and, they, and, they'll, and they'll be talking about all the things that the other spouse did, you know, like, well, they did this and they did that. And I, and I, sometimes I've had to stop and go, yeah, but you cheated on them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah, that's probably bad, but like, you, you know that you, you know, and, and maybe you'll get a little like, we, okay, yeah, yeah. So I did, yes, I, I acknowledge I did think, but this is all the things that they did. And the, but there's very little acknowledgement of here is what I did that is a problem. Yes, these other things happened, but here I own this. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. When I was doing my, um, my capstone project, um, when I was completing my master's degree, um, I looked at essentially, um, attachment and how attachment played into sexual addiction and mm -hmm. one of the papers that I came across which was really interesting was about this is tying these these two topics together was was something that the author called sexual narcissism which was people that had 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 affairs and they acknowledged that affairs were wrong but they were somehow able to justify in their head well you know my and it was mostly men so, so I'll just come at this from the male perspective. You know, my, my wife is, you know, isn't willing to be intimate with me or my wife is, you know, mean to me or, and, and even if those things are all true, it, it's suddenly like they didn't have control over themselves. Like, like well, I guess if, if someone's just not intimate with you, then, you know, the body just defaults into, I can't help myself, I'm just gonna go be with somebody else. Um, and so that recognition of, of the, their own bad behavior was just not registering at all for them. Yeah. And, you know, here, here's the thing that I find so interesting about that, too. Uh, when you're dealing with somebody who has those tendencies and, you're, and they're talking to you about these things, a lot of the times if you were to be, if you either are or have talked to the other spouse, like when they say the things that were their gripes, the other spouse is like, news to me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, no, you, you felt this way. You never told me you felt that way, you know? And that, in, in, and I, I just recently had this conversation with somebody uh, um, <clears throat> who was having, you know, they were having some issues and, and I told them, I go, you know, in my, and, and this may not be, look, I know, just so we're clear, sometimes I'm hard to deal with. I mean, like, I just know because, um, because I have this idea in my head, and this is from my own past experiences and relationships. Um, I don't like conflict. I, it's interesting to say that as an attorney, because I deal with it every day. But I mean, like, yeah. I, I, I'm not in my relationships. I'm I don't like conflict, but um, I place my need to be heard and understood above the uncomfort of the conflict. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, but when you're the reverse of that, when like I have been that in the past, where I've been like, 
it's not worth the fight. Or I can't say what I want to say. I can't say what I what I really feel. Because if I do, it's just going to be a fight and it's going to be, and I'm gonna, they're going to point at me and tell me it's my fault and all these things. I just don't want to, you know what I mean? I just don't even want to deal with it. It's fine. It's not that big a deal. It eventually comes out in other ways if you don't, mm-hmm. if you don't discuss it. And I think it's, it's, and it also just, if you're one of these people, I just want to let you know, if you're one of these people listening who you're like, I am struggling in my relationship and you're not saying it. The, the problem becomes is that like one, the other person may be completely unaware that you're having this issue. And then on top of that, also, it leads you to a place where you may end up, it, it'll come out in other ways and it'll be hurtful. Right. I mean, not necessarily cheating, but I mean, you might start getting passive aggressive and causing problems, you know, looking at things that are bad on the other side. But then when you let's say that they call you out for something like the experience I was just sharing with with the friend who cheated. Well, well, now that puts the other spouse in this position of you never said that before. So either one you're lying to me now about all these things to try to justify your behavior. Or when I'm asking you if you're okay and you're telling me you're fine, you were lying to me then and you weren't really fine. Either way, you're not being honest with your spouse and you got to get through that stuff. Otherwise, it's just, it. My, my experience has told me it will all eventually come to the surface, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, I had a, a pretty astute professor say once, um, you know, when we use the word relationship, it's singular, but every relationship is actually two. So, it, you know, that we often, you, you might hear someone say, well, they should know that I'm upset. Well, I wouldn't uh, assume that. <laughs> yeah. Know? Don't assume yeah. That somebody, even somebody that yeah. you know very, very well knows what's going on, especially if you're good at hiding it, which some people actually can be very good at that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. That's a, that's actually a frustrating one. Uh, when, when someone says to you, well, you should know. And, and you're like, well, if I'm asking you, I obviously don't know. Right. <laughs> you know, and then they won't tell you. And you're like, well, then I'm guessing, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm going to guess wrong. And that's another thing I actually found really interesting. I think I think Tony one time uh, when I was talking to him said, or maybe it was somebody else I interviewed, but like they're, they're saying, they said something along the lines of sometimes it's like they don't want to tell you because, again, it's an internal problem, right? So if they tell you what the problem is and then you fix the problem and then they still feel bad, they can't project it onto you anymore. It's It's an internal issue. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that happens a lot in, in relationships generally. Yeah. I think that if, if people were willing to get, uh, past the discomfort of, of like the conflict, I think that you'd see a lot more success in some of these things, like being willing to have tension in the relationship just so that people understand you know, where you're coming from, it'd be super helpful. Now, you mentioned uh, something earlier. You said tying relationships in with uh, addiction. You know, we, we talked about in your in the last podcast that you've you've kind of run the gamut of of some of the most the most prevalent addictions in our society. 
you dealt with, uh, you know, eating addiction, which I think, you know, I was thinking about this afterwards. That's probably the most prevalent one. And it's probably, do you think that might be the most unhealthy one? Oh man, it's hard to really label like uh, healthy versus unhealthy. I will say uh, in terms of uh diagnosable conditions in the DSM. Um, the most dangerous are, are eating disorders. People die mm. more from those. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently. Hopefully that's accurate because that's what they said. Uh, <laughs> die more frequently from those than, than any others. Um, and that goes both ways, right? So, mm. so starving yourself is, is not good and overeating is not good. Um, has serious long-term health consequences. And I don't want to get into like a societal, uh, I don't know, maybe I do because I'm bringing it up. Um, there are voices in our society that are, are doing their best to support people that are heavy, which I understand, but their approach sometimes seems a little black and white. Like like there's there's no room for a discussion about like, hey, what is a healthy weight for this person? Now they need to make that judgment themselves um, you know, but there's certainly questions about, are we being honest with our fellow man in, in saying, you know, hey, you look beautiful at 400 pounds. I mean, maybe you do look beautiful at 400 pounds, but you might feel better, you know, if, if, you, if you shed some of that. And I feel okay saying that because I've been very heavy. I know you mentioned last time that, that you know, you kind of went, I mean, you're seven inches taller than me. So, <laughs> you know, the, my hitting 300 pounds, I, I don't know exactly how the fat percentage works out versus uh -oh. your... Well, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, yeah, well, I'll tell you, man, like you, you've actually hit, I've, I've had numerous conversations about this very topic. I think, uh, and it's, and it's one that's actually very, very triggering for me, uh, right or wrong, just because I look, like you said, I've been there, like I've been 354 pounds and that was just what I weighed. I mean, I might've weighed more, I don't know, but that's the, the heaviest I ever weighed at a doctor's office. Okay. And, and like, um, I, I'm totally cool with the people who are like anti-fat shaming. Like you shouldn't make fun of somebody because if they're, if they're 350, 400 pounds, there's something going on there more than just overeating. You know what I mean? Like when they're that big, there is a major issue going on that it goes beyond just liking hostess. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's something bigger. But this this lobby, I, I'd, I saw someone uh, or I heard something, I think it was on Bill Maher, where someone is, it's like a fat acceptance. And they said something along the lines of in an article, science hasn't really figured out the uh, the cause of obesity. And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> it's like, I'm pretty sure we have. It's you're eating too many donuts. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's calories in calories out. It's actually very simple, you know, very few, un, you know, un, uh, very few people who are grossly overweight have some sort of hormone imbalance or hypothyroid thing. Most of the time it's because they're drinking sodas and they're eating chips and they're eating empty calories. They're not getting the nutrients and they're not doing anything to work out. And I was just like, <laughs> I heard that and I got I got kind of rude about it. I was like, we don't. Yes, I do know what the problem is. And that is you need to put the Reese's peanut butter cup down. 
Like that's the way it was for me. It was very simple. When I started figuring out what my <laughs> what my calories were that I could eat without getting fatter and cut them down a little bit, I started losing weight. And then when I eat them more, I get bigger. If I'm not in the gym, I get bigger. It's very simple. And I think we're doing a big disservice to people. Not to say that we got to make fun of people who are heavy, but but you definitely don't want to do that. But not having an honest conversation about, like, I think the kind of the blood is on your hands if you're not willing to tell people, like, hey, you, you know, you're going to die early. You're going to have major joint problems. I mean, when you get to be four or 500 pounds, you're going to have major joint problems, major heart problems, diabetes. Like, there's so many, there's so much linked to obesity that you know you're almost certainly going to die early yeah and and the difficulty around having that conversation um it i don't know i experience frustration because um i think one of the things and i may have mentioned this last time was was early on i saw a psychiatrist who's wonderful guy and at the time, you know, medicine was like, hey, you just have a, a disorder because you've got your neurotransmitters are off. So you need to take these drugs. So they, they essentially told me there's nothing you can really do but take this pill. It's the only thing that's really going to help. And and that just wasn't accurate. Um, and and so I wish I wish that, that the conversation could have expanded. Hey, if you do these other things, i.e. the wellness model and, and you know, find what other areas of your life that are out of balance you know these can help like you your brain can become more healthy you can enjoy life more so yeah and on top of that also well a couple of things first of all <clears throat> i i think i've i've heard um i've heard i've, I've interviewed a, a number of uh mental health professionals now um on this podcast and it seems to be some agreement that <clears throat> addiction is really kind of an unhealthy coping mechanism for things that are going on in your life, which is like, like me, I, look, I, I'm totally admit, uh, when I'm stressed, I eat, you know what I mean? It, it's a, it's a comfort thing for me. And, uh, and it's a social thing for me. You know, I, I like having, I like making giant breakfast with my kids and I like, you know, um, so, so there's that, but perhaps you, if you know, could talk about what is going on inside when you have an eating addiction or an eating disorder? Um, so I, I'll have to defer a little bit to Daniel Amen. Have you heard of Dr. Daniel Amen? I haven't. Okay. So um, I will admit that some people find him a little bit controversial. Um, hmm. He he is a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and um, he started these these clinics, the Amen clinics, um, one of which I went to and, and had good results and have had clients go to and have also seen some positive results. Um, they use SPECT scanning. So basically, they'll take a scan of your brain and, uh, and then that will kind of give them additional information. Psychiatry is kind of one of these unusual sciences in that um, sometimes it seems a little like throwing darts at a dartboard. So they find the condition based on your symptoms, but there's crossover symptoms. So getting the actual diagnosis right is, is not 
is is uh, solid as, as we would ideally like it. And then there's like a list of medications and they're just gonna start you on the list. And for genetic reasons or other possibilities, some of those may be completely ineffective, they could make you worse. Um, and, and so Dr. Amen was like, you know, this is kind of weird. So they started this spec scanning process and it allowed them to see what was going on internally. So it's looking at the surface, the top surface and the, and the under the bottom surface of the brains and it's, and it's also looking internally at uh, activity. And, and so after doing these brain scans, they can start to determine kind of specific brain areas where there might be problems. Hmm. Um, so one of the things that he talks about with sugar is it lights up everything, <laughs> uh, which is interesting because drugs do similar types of things. So well, I, I can tell you, uh, sugar lights up my life. I'll tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> I am with you. I um, and it doesn't even have to be sugar. Like it could be, I mean, I'm, I'm currently trying to like be careful about carbs because I recognize oh. I feel better and, and, and I'm trying to lose weight. I'm like constantly in this weight loss struggle. Mm -hmm. And so my wife and I went out to dinner last night and uh, this place just has these amazing rolls. And I'm like, I'm going to let myself have two. Oh. And I had four. What place? What place? Give them a plug. I might have to go. <laughs> Where'd you go? Uh, Texas, Texas Roadhouse. Oh, God, that's my favorite. It's my favorite. I go there. I, I'll tell you, I go to Texas Roadhouse. I get those big, you know, I get those rolls because they're amazing. I've actually I've yeah. actually ordered them for Thanksgiving. Like I've gotten really? some and, and had them had, you know, you can you can you can get them. You, you have to order early, but you can okay. go and pick them up in the morning and you can actually cook them at home. They're they're like 400 calories each. Did you know that? Oh, no, no, I'm actually worse, but <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I don't. It's funny though when you're in front of them, I don't care. But you go to Texas Roadhouse, and I and I just go, I'll take the biggest steak you have, bring those rolls, give me a, t you know what I mean, like that. I love that place. Ah, oh, so good. Anyway, so carry on. I just had to. I I, I no. thought that's where you were going, and so I wanted yeah. to make sure. Yeah, good connection. Yeah. Um, well, and and so that's. He actually lists sugar as, you know, one of the highly addictive substances of our mm -hmm. of our time. You know, he lists mm -hmm. caffeine, which I think the science is relatively settled that it, that it's addictive. But, you know, people use it very frequently. Um, so so it's not just you know, for for a lot of people, it's like, OK, I understand that meth is bad for me or cocaine is bad for me. You know, there's some people that don't see the dangers in THC, although there's a lot of evidence that's coming out that's more and more problematic. These brain scans. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I probably in hindsight could have sent you um, some website links and you could look at. So they have like side by sides of like a healthy brain and then a brain of an addict. And they're just like on a surface level, there's just holes everywhere. I mean, wow. just like you would expect normal functioning. Um, in my scan, I had a, a hole in the side of my head. It was like a traumatic brain injury. They can tell the wow. difference between a traumatic brain injury versus like a, a, a hole that exists um, from overusing drugs. Wow. Um, is, this good, is this for every, sorry to interrupt you, but is this for every addiction or specifically drug addiction? Well, so different addictions function different, differently drugs in particular seem to really have a horrific effect on the brain yeah um 
Are you seeing other areas? So, for example, in my in my brain scan, um, some of my addictions because um, the primary long-term ones were behavioral. Mm-hmm. Where I happened to see some effect was in my pre- prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. So this front part of our brain, which we mentioned before, which is executive functioning, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it does a lot of things, but but that's yeah. really for human beings where you know, our decisions are happening. And um, and it was interesting that they were also the ones that identified my ADHD. So mm-hmm. so they had you do a task. So and it was something very menial. Press a space bar every time you see or hear this. Um, and, and so when your brain is at rest, that's kind of the baseline. And then for people with it, so you expect certain parts of the brain to be not functioning um, at a very high level because of the fact that the brain is at rest. The brain can't be on all the time. So then you go in and you start doing a task and an interesting thing happens with people with ADHD, those areas that, that they might've been on before are now off. So you're trying to focus and the brain's like, no, thanks. And it's like shutting things down. Um, So, you know, that was that was what they saw with mine. Well, they also saw these other areas that that were were shut down. Um, It appeared as a result of addiction. Now, they have a lot of before and afters. So someday maybe maybe I might go back and kind of look at how my brain has changed since since getting sober, because I definitely feel different. Yeah. so people that are able to get off of, of drugs and alcohol and different things, so these areas that, you know, gaps in functioning start to, to come back. And I'm probably speaking really, really crudely about what they do. It's <laughs> this is a non-neurologist yeah. or a medical doctor talking about right. it, um, trying to explain it. But yeah, it's well, really interesting. So perhaps real quick before, because I do want to talk about your specific story too, but can you tell us what you, you mentioned that you had issues in your executive functioning. So what specific things are you referring to when you're dealing with executive functioning? Is it like memory recall, brain fog, that type of stuff that you're dealing with? Yeah, the, the, those are pretty common things. Um, so, so for me, I have a terrible memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's always been terrible, but I know it's terrible now. I did okay in school, so I thought it was okay. Um, I use an app. To, to kind of help called Elevate. And it's just a couple mm-hmm. minutes every day. And um, and my other scores are pretty solid and that one is very low. So mm. it, it's, it's me trying, like I have to actively try to keep my memory intact because I, it's, not, it's not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, with other things, you know, the prefrontal cortex would kind of be the brakes. So when it comes to impulsive or compulsive decision-making, impulsive being, I just get a feeling, compulsive being, I get a, a thought or idea. The, the prefrontal cortex would be kind of the part you would expect to, to be kind of the balance or the scale. So on one side, you have this impulsive decision. On the other side, it's like, well, you know, what might be some of the consequences of this? So you expect to see younger kids where this part of the brain is not fully functional. Um, or fully developed to, to be more impulsive and be more compulsive. That's pretty normal. But as an adult, ideally adults that develop uh, in, a, in a normal way or, or way that we would ideally like um, have that ability. And so I, that's part of the, the, what goes along with addiction is, is you become less in tune with your executive functioning and ability to make good decisions 
and more a slave to the impulsive or, or compulsive. So I might just be like, oh, I really want this. And, and I, you know, surge of dopamine, which is, you know, now got me in pursuit of something and trying to disconnect from this thing that your brain wants really badly. Um, there's a saying that I really like, you know, addiction is essentially wanting something more and liking it less. So you might even be like, I don't, I don't want to do this, but you feel so, dr I mean, it is like an unseen hand pushing you towards it. I just don't know how to explain it uh, other yeah. than that when you're deep in addiction. Because you, you know you there's a part of you that's like, don't do this. and But that part is so overwhelmed by this other part of you that's like, I have to have it. Man, so in these these things, you're this is not just because I know that like drugs chemically change your brain. Do the sex addiction, gambling addiction, overeating, does that do the same or less, the same thing but less? Or uh, or how does that work, like these behavioral ones? Yeah, um, I would say, I don't know that I could say less. I would say some brain changes are, are happening um, that are gonna mirror one another. Mm -hmm. There might be some, some differences in what's happening to the brain. So, so, for example, with chemicals, the chemical that a person ingests is going to attach to um, certain areas of the brain in, in, in the neural system. <clears throat> and any of those areas where that, that, uh, that particular neurotransmitter is prevalent is going to affect that area more. So, so it's almost like we have kind of different areas that are affected by different things, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, the the overriding issue with with our with addiction is surge of dopamine so we get very focused on it reduced functioning of the prefrontal cortex and some of these some of these neural connections between the prefrontal cortex and kind of like our emotional uh, center start to to become inactive and and so these means both chemically and behaviorally um, are driving the likelihood of that behavior increasing in the future um, up substantially every time we do it. Wow. So how do you get that back? You just go cold turkey or how do you get, how do you get that back uh, and, and fight the addiction? Because it, it seems to me you, you got to be able to, because I mean, it, it sounds hopeless almost, you know, when you're in that, in that spiral, because what you're telling me is, is, this thing creates a dopamine rush, makes you feel really good. It limits your impulse control, which means that you're more impulsive, and these are impulsive decisions when you're doing them. So it reinforces the impulsive decisions you've already made, makes you feel better. And then on top of that, also, we talked about the tolerance issue. So then on top of that, you, you're not getting as much of the dopamine, so you got to do more of whatever you're doing, whether it be a drug or maybe more hardcore pornography or or eating more or whatever it is or, or gambling more money to get the same effect yeah and <clears throat> yes it can feel hopeless i mean that's why you have rehabs charging i mean i don't, I don't even know what they're charging these days 20 to fifty thousand dollars a month um it is i just ran hopeless. in i just ran into somebody with a heroin addiction eighty five thousand dollars for 50 days wow. Eighty-five thousand for fifty days. In. Wow! Yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah, it, it's it's a lot, um, 
and it's it's overwhelming and then you get out and then all the you know all those reminders start like, so at that point you're you no longer are experiencing withdrawal tolerance but all of those reminders so oh i remember <laughs> going to this place and being with this or you see this person you used to do this with and and you know those carry on for a long time so these neural connections now associate this person with this thing or this place with this thing or this food with this thing and so you're fighting those at that point <clears throat> um it is not hopeless. It is difficult. Um, mm-hmm. 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 You might sometimes hear someone say that uh, you know you you finally get sober when you hit rock bottom. You know when the 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 pain of recovery is less than the pain of the addiction. That's when people finally like, okay, this is I can't anymore. Um, my experience was was it was a quick road down and a long road back up. Um, mm. Some people go cold turkey, and I, I mean, that's amazing for them. I wish that was me, but that was not my experience. Um, mm. You mentioned Tony Overbay. Um, being that I work for him, I take a similar approach, partially because of my experience, partially because I just you know, like everything that Tony does. I think he's, he's amazing. Um, yeah, he's really smart. So he, yeah. Yeah, he is. He's great at what he does. So he uses what's called the harm reduction model. Um, the harm reduction model is essentially, you know, last week I, you know, say looked at pornography 10 times. Well, this week, if I look at it seven times, that, that's an improvement. Now, some people hate that because it's, it's like, yeah, but you're giving them like approval to still look at pornography. Um, and, and there's certainly a lot to potentially unpack around the religious implications of that and, and stuff. Or, or maybe they have a spouse that's like, I want this done and over. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's one of the really difficult parts about addiction therapy is, is you might have a spouse that's incredibly hurt, that is feeling just really sad or angry or overwhelmed or all of it. And, and then you know, you're having this conversation and, and they're like, well, what do you mean it's an improvement if they're still doing it? And, uh, and, and that's, I, I get, I understand that. I, I totally can see their point. Um, I just don't know how for some people, cold turkey just doesn't seem to work. Now the 12 steps are all about cold turkey. Um, mm-hmm. I like the 12 step group, as you meant, as, as we've talked about, I facilitate a 12 step, uh, 12 step addiction recovery group. Um, and, and I really enjoy that. Um, but I think for a lot of people, because you're so deep and you have so far to go, you're looking for progress and not perfection. And, and that's, that's sometimes hard. It, it, it is hard, not only for us, but for also people around us, because there's a big part of us that just wants to be done with it. But, you know, like with, you're probably not going to go to the gym tomorrow and, and I don't know, I'll pick this out of a hat. Hopefully you can't bench 400 pounds. I mean, if you do, awesome. <laughs> but you're probably not gonna go to the gym tomorrow and bench 400 pounds. That might take a while to work up to. And likewise, yeah. you know, you have to get the brain into a place where the brain is plastic, so it can change, but it changes as slow as with the brain. So you just have mm. to give it that time to readjust and adapt. Sometimes it's a hard conversation for people to, to have because they just want to be done with it or their loved ones just want to be done with it. And you're like, yeah. I get it. That's I. That's it may the not be fast. That's the hard part, right? Is that like you know I'm I've, I'm a family member of, of addicts and I've seen what it does to other people and yeah like 
the relapses, the the um, it, it the glacial pace upon which some of these things tend to move. You almost as as somebody who is a um, a family member of somebody who's dealing with this, and it may even go with mental health disorders too when they're dealing with it. Is it is um, you're almost sacrificing your own mental health to stay and be supportive in some ways, you know, because they're going to, they're, yeah, there's going to be relapses. There's going to be messes. At least my experience in dealing with people like this, there's, there's going to be relapses. There's going to be difficulties. There's a level of trust that is lost. Um, and so that also creates a bigger stress between you and the person because the person, even if they're not doing something, you're still skeptical, right? Um, and so that creates some tension between the two of you, which, you know, these things start because they're, they're coping mechanisms with stress. So they're more stressed out, which makes them more likely to go and do it. But you at the same time, like you can't just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a delicate balance, which is why a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of family members don't stick around. So, yeah. And, and I think that, that that's really one of the big challenges. Um, one of the papers that I read that I really liked, I wish I, I need to do a better job remembering the authors, but as I mentioned before, memory is not so straight. Um, you know, maybe it's a little bit too uh, strong of a statement, but I, but I like the sentiment. You know, the authors said, people don't have addiction problems, they have attachment problems. And, and so, you know, the more you lose, most addicts, I, th I think it's fair to say most, a lot of addicts often have strained relationships. And, and sometimes really what you need is, is a, a secure relationship. Mm -hmm. um, you do, somebody that you can lean on that's, that's going to be there no matter what. And like you say, like that's a really hard thing for a person, like to, mm -hmm. to serve that role. Um, I, I, I don't know how people do that. I've never done that. I mean, I work with addicts, but as a therapist, you're always kind of a little bit removed from the emotion of the whole thing because, of course, you want them to succeed and you might feel sad for them if they don't, um, but you're not in the trenches day in and day out. You know, you're, right. you're there, you know, once a week or once every two weeks or, or maybe twice a week if they're in a bad shape for 50 minutes. Uh, you know, yeah. Other than that. They're, they're out in the weeds with their loved ones and trying to figure it out. Right. Far different than a spouse who's sitting there, you know, every day waiting for them to come home, wondering if, you know, they've, they've used or they've done something wrong or, and then they come back and they're stressed out and they're freaking out and you're walking on eggshells because you don't want to stress them out too much. You don't want them to go back to the addiction, you know, and, and that's a, that's a tough place to be. I mean, um, being the the spouse or the, you know of, a, of an addict who's starting recovery, it's it's one of the more I'd say one of the more Christ-like places to be if you're willing to get through it, um, and also not only get through it, but then also also forgive for all of that. It's hard to let go of that trauma. It really is. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens. I mean, I, you know, I talk about my, my dad, you know, he, he did a lot of things, you know, that, that were uh, not good. And, um, you, you know, I held a lot of resentment for a lot of years because of it, you know. And um, I've let go of it now for the most part, I think. I mean, <clears throat> but, um, 
that took a long time to repair that relationship. It's really tough. So can you, can you give it, so give us a sense now, one of the things I wanted to talk about with you kind of backtracking a little bit, I found it very interesting that you said in the last podcast, you didn't really have any addiction problems at all until you were 21, 22. So after you served a mission for the church, meaning in high school, like never, you know, didn't drink a lot, didn't, didn't, weren't really into porn, doing all that stuff. Then all of a sudden, like, was there some catalyst for that? Probably. Um, to clarify, um, I didn't do anything. I, I did one, in, at eight years old, somebody gave me a cigarette and I took a puff and that was it. Maybe I was 10. Um, that was the extent of, of my use of anything, behavioral or substance related prior to 21 never looked at porn i mean like i was clean as a whistle uh, my experience was i you you may remember this i'm a little bit older than you but uh i was in school and i was up late one night and i was like doing research uh, on the internet for a paper that i was doing and all of a sudden i just had like pop-up city going crazy on my computer it was all pornographic images hmm. and i'd never seen anything like that before in my life i mean just like everywhere and every every different thing that a person could imagine you know outside of i guess illegal stuff hmm. and so i immediately shut it all off and like went to bed but Man, that triggered some kind of something really curious in me. So the next night, I'm working on the paper again, and I f just feel this just ever so slight tug. Um, and and I look at that as a really critical point. You know, I could have made the decision to ignore it and and perhaps avoided everything else that followed from that, um, but I didn't. And I knew that somewhere there was some, like that stuff had to be on the history. So I looked at the history and sure enough, there was just all this crazy stuff on there and I just clicked on one. And it was like just downhill from there. And mm. uh, that was how that was how it happened for me. Um, I believe that that's illegal. I don't think people can do that anymore. And Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that happens so. anymore. I don't think that happens anymore. But I remember back in the late 90s and early 2000s, that was commonplace. Like you had completely different website. You could just be on, I'd be on like a pro wrestling website looking up, you know, the the results of a wrestling show or something and then boom, pop up and, you know, whatever, whatever type of pornographic thing you want to look at. And yeah, you just, that's it, man. So, so the, your first forte into addiction was porn addiction. How did, how did it graduate from there? Well, what ended up happening for me was it was it was affecting my relationships as as I mean, of course, pornography does, um, mm -hmm. you know, people get just such a skewed version of what relationships are, you know, it's highly sexual. I, I think most of it, you know, the women are, are always um, excited, you know, it, it's so not real life. Yeah. Um, it's no effort for the man, it, you know, and, and so I started, I, I think that this kind of narcissism 
which probably existed in me. Let's just call it maybe emotional immaturity at very least, which which maybe became a little bit more extensive. Um, started to throw me into relationships that had become like I was pretty good. I was fine up to that point, and then they started to skew more and more sexual. And what I found was as I journeyed down that, <clears throat> I was unhappy and depressed and anxious and all the things that come along with it. One of the interesting things um, we know about pornography use is um, anxiety disorders, particularly social anxiety disorders, skyrockets once people start start viewing pornography. Really? Um, so your relationships are suffering, you're struggling to date, as you know, you know, at that time in a person's life, like a male LDS person's life, you're kind of ideally looking to get educated and find somebody to have a family with. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm spiraling downward. And, mm -hmm. uh, and can I, can I stop you right there? Can I stop right there and ask yeah, you a couple questions? Yeah. So yeah. when you, when you talk about your relationships becoming more sexual, do you mean that like, so that means that you were having, you know, for people who aren't Mormon, we, we, we believe we shouldn't have sex before marriage. And, and that includes like other things as well. You know, you're, you're not really supposed to go down that road at all. So are you saying that like your, your relationships of people you're dating are becoming more sexual? Or do you mean like you were suddenly starting to just chase like sexual encounters with people? Not like one night stands, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it would be the first where the relation, okay. I was pushing boundaries, um, on the, you know, and this is where I started to see myself, you know, using people. Um, mm. I think that that was like one of the worst things for me because I really liked people and I, I, you know, I wanted to be a good friend and I wanted to be a good partner. Um, you know, but it starts to just become all about you. And, mm. and so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not like sexual assault, but but you know you're you're starting to push the boundaries a little bit and and yeah. so what you end up having is is these conflicts in relationships where your expectation is here and their expectation is here and and it's just it's not lining up very well mm -hmm. so so for me what i ended up finding myself doing is starting to to pursue uh women that that were more okay with with what I was looking for, and that put me in in groups of people that uh, happened to be engaging in a lot of um, substance use, so drugs, mm. alcohol, stuff like that. So they mm. they were a lot they were a lot more um, they were a lot different in their standards as opposed to what I had always held as my standard. So my standard changed because my brain changed, and it was looking for different things. Um, and that's when I was really introduced more to, I mean, I, sure, I've been to high school parties where people were drinking and doing drugs, but I knew my dad would kill me if I touched the stuff, so I didn't. <laughs> right. you know, and now, now I'm in this place where I'm like, well, I'm not going to get killed, so everybody else seems to be having a good time. So you start to experiment, and then you find out what you really like, and, and then you, know, you go down that rabbit hole. So now you've got a couple of, of addictions stacked up. Um, to be fair, when it when it comes to, to pornography, just viewing pornography on its face doesn't necessarily constitute an addiction. And even in the therapy world, there are certainly clinicians that don't believe that sex is an addictive behavior. I do personally. I understand it's based on my experience. 
Um, did I mention Dopamine Nation last time by Anna Lemke or I don't know. Yeah, Anna I Lemke. think you did the last time. Yeah. Okay. So she's very clear in her book. She a hundred percent sees it as an addictive behavior. Well, and it, and it, so. you know, let me just say, obviously, I don't have the the training that you or Anna Lemke have, right? But but I just anecdotally, knowing some of my, I've had a couple of friends who have become, who have become sex addicts, and the things that they do when they confide in me of what they've done is so far out of character that it has to be an addiction. I mean, like, because if it wasn't an addiction, they wouldn't do it. You know what I mean? Like, you, you just, you, the person that they want to be wouldn't do the things that they, that they do. It's like a double life, right? So it has to be because there's, there's no way that they would do that on their own. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I can connect with, with that, like the distance from where we are, you know, and we can kind of look outward at like what we could become, say on a scale of like, if you want to just call it like light or dark, if we, you know, consider or, or good or evil or, or, you know, positive, negative, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, if you see yourself as a person that wants to pursue um, good or, or light, um, it's very interesting how the distance from where we are at any point to this, these behaviors, which we think we might never do, it's not nearly as great of a chasm as we might think. I, I'm sure. And that and that's what it's it, because then also when I talk to these people about this, when they finally wake up, they don't know how they got there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's just they've gone so far and justified so many things. Like you mentioned earlier, you're like it's an you know, you don't even want it, but you're just impulsive. Like I have one friend who specifically confided to me the, the, about their sex addictions and that's what it was they weren't even interested it's not like they were even really they walking in you know walking into the massage parlor or walking into you know the whatever on Watt avenue that they know what they're doing is wrong they know they shouldn't can't st- can't help it yeah and let me let me clarify in case i i maybe was was not super clear <clears throat> It's wanting versus liking. Mm-hmm. We want it terribly. Even if we think we, we like, like, we're like, no, nah, but there's part of me that doesn't want it, but we don't like it. Like, mm-hmm. we don't get in, in the enjoyment out of it. But, like, that dopamine is about want, not like. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of, of pursuit versus pleasure. So, dopamine is less associated with pleasure, more associated with pursuit. And, uh, and it's like a tractor beam, man. It's, it's like pulling you in and you're trying to get out of it. And, and you're like, why, why am I such a failure? I, I just, I, why can I not stop this? Well, you know what? Let me ask you, this is, this just popped into my brain. This might be, I don't know, my ADD or something. Uh, but, uh, I don't have ADD, but you know what I mean? I, it, something just popped yeah. into my head. Pursuit versus like, <clears throat> I've noticed in a lot of people when it comes to relationships, like I have a, a one friend who will remain nameless where like, he, it seems to me as an observer who's known him for a really long time, that if if somebody likes him back, 
like really quickly, he's not interested. But if it's somebody who's kind of aloof, not really texting him back, not calling him, he like, he's really, he's really hard on that. Like he really goes hard on trying to get that one. And, and I've actually said that to him. I've been like, you know, he had one person he was dating that was really just perfect for him in my mind. And he, not interested because she just almost like she made it too easy and i'm like dude i you just want the people you can't have you know what i mean is that is that the same kind of concept is it, do we see that in some relationships sure yeah i mean if you look at from an evolutionary perspective you know males largely were hunters you know we hunt would hunt right. not just for food but you know we, we hunt for relationships and so you know you always want the the greatest prize now there's there's multiple factors involved with that if you have a male that's like higher in neuroticism or anxiety um they may be looking for something that is a little bit easier to to get because the rejection that they may feel from someone that seems not interested might be too much to handle so so it, de it does depend on the male. Um, anytime you're looking at pursuit, that's largely a function of, of dopamine. Um, and, and dopamine is all about survival. Our mm. dopamine system was developed in order to help us survive. So, you know, the, the best partner, the, the best job, the, like all of these things that might, our brain might believe helps us survive the longest and create offspring that can ca carry on dopamine is all about that hmm. so now how does that logically fit in with addiction yeah good question um, mm -hmm. you know it can be it, it can be irrational and overtaken through other means um, but as a system um, generally that's what it's looking for is what's going to help us survive yeah so <clears throat> so with your your addictions so you you it sounds like you start with a pornography addiction that translates into more sexual experiences, I guess, in, in partners. Um, how long, and then, you, and then you end up in these places where you're starting to do some substance abuse, as far as al alcohol, right? You're drinking alcohol. Yeah, I experimented with a few different things, but alcohol was the thing I really latched onto. Okay. So. <clears throat> and, then, um, and then you mentioned earlier um, that you, then it, there came a, a gambling addiction how far out were you and like how how give me the timeline of how long it, it it kind of translated into that yeah so so if my pornography stuff and sexual stuff started in say my 20 say 22 just to be safe mm -hmm. um alcohol and ex other experimentation probably hit 23 to 24 and then gambling probably hit around 25, 26, something like that. Wow. So um, now where in this, in this chronology do you uh, get married? Hmm. 25, 26? 25, okay. Like so <laughs> bad memory again yeah I think yeah so 20, th I think that's around 25. is that around the time your gambling addiction started yeah wow okay so now you get you get your your marriage uh you're married to another member of the church she, she was she 
was not active when we met, um, but she got kind of reactivated sort of when we were together because we I, I was kind of in and out of activity. Um, it's hard to, you know, when you're really struggling with addiction, you feel however you feel about yourself negatively. Um, you know, going to church is tough. So, so we were moderately active in our attendance. So tell me what you mean, like what makes it tough when you're in the addiction to go to church? Because I've seen that. I've seen that too. Yeah, I think it's, it's ultimately going to boil down to shame. Um, you know, you're there, everybody looks nice, you know, they look... Are you, are you sorry, are you hearing this, this, this no, I can't. leaf blower? Okay, sorry, I was just... <laughs> There's somebody outside my window just blowing leaves everywhere and it's loud. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> what did you say? So, so I think part of that like projection is happening. You know, I, I, I felt so much shame and I was judging the heck out of myself. And, mm. you know, I, I think for me it tied to other things, which was, you know, God didn't love me or God had forgotten about me or, you know, in any number of things that like I just I didn't. I didn't believe that I belonged there, and I felt a lot of uh, negative things about myself, um, mm. and and so I wanted to be there, and I I knew I was happy when I was there, and I was living this this faith, but I also recognized that I wasn't living the faith, and I mm. didn't know what to do when I was there because you know should I take the sacrament? Should I not take the sacrament? Do I need to go talk to the bishop? I'd already talked to him a bazillion times, like. It's it's just kind of like you're so frustrated with yourself that that going to church becomes a reminder of how much of, of a failure your life has become. Mm. You know, it's it's funny because uh, I think there's a component of this um, that I think is also kind of the facade that that like we as members kind of put on. And I don't necessarily think it's intentional, but like when you think about the way church goes, you put on your Sunday best, you bring all your kids. If you're anything like me, you threaten them with certain death if they're not okay in a right. sacrament meeting, right? <laughs> you're like, you know, and so so they sit there and they're quiet, and you know they're all in a line and they all look cute, and you just look like this perfect family, and then you. You don't know other than, unless you're the bishop, right? Like you don't know anything about what anybody else is really doing in their lives outside of Sunday. Maybe you do a couple people who are close friends, but like you don't really know what's going on with these people. And you see the people who are always in the front row and always have really fancy things to say at church and you know, all of those things. Uh, but you know your own sins. And so you feel like you're not, you don't belong. Like if these people knew what I was going through, they wouldn't want to talk to me or want to associate with me. The thing about that is, is it is a facade because like every, I have been, I have served, I've said this before, I've served in high councils and bishoprics and elders quorums. And I know that almost everybody is dealing with something really, really difficult. You know, uh, some of them are just not as, I guess, uh, like they're, they're just not as overt, like you can't see it. You know, like there are some things that people do, you see them. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you can't help it. It's very public. 
But there's a lot of people in private that are struggling with all sorts of things. And, and so I wish there was some way that we could get past that as a church. Because in those situations, like you, you've shared, and, and maybe you can comment on this. You shared it took you to get rid of all, all of these addictions. Uh, it's taken you 20 years. I wonder if you, at the beginning, when you didn't, if you didn't feel that and kept going, if somehow that might have benefited you and you've been able to do it more. Maybe you could talk about that. What do you think? Oh, man. Unpopular answer. I don't know. I mean, would I mm. like to think that it might yeah. have helped? Of course. Um, I, I did when I went. I got a lot of support from the leadership. Mm-hmm. Um you know, some things are easier to see than others. Drug addiction. Mm. I mean, hex. I mean, smoking. When you smoke, it's in everything. You know, yeah. being a gambler, you spend <laughs> enough time at casinos. Like, like there's no way people around you don't know. I got to tell you, I picked, I picked up. A, I got to tell you the story real quick. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, no, I, I, I had I went and bought a bed off a of Facebook marketplace and uh, it, was, it was super cheap. And it was perfect for what I needed. And so I I walk in with my dad, bring the money, and like, yeah, smoker's house, right? And I'm just like, and in my head, and it was like, you know, I have so little time. So I'm like, okay, I'll just, I, I, t- I whiff it a little bit. I'm like, I think it's just the house. It's not the bed. Fine. I take it. I pay for it. I take it and put it in my garage. And the next thing I know, my garage stinks, like just stinks like smoke, smoking cats, right? Just stinks. And it took me like a week to get that out with baking soda and all that stuff. It's disgusting. Anyway, that's a side. So, so you're, so, so anyway, yeah, like you're, you're, it's hard because people can see this stuff. Right, right. You know, they can see it or it, they can, they can smell it, you know, and then you have certain addictions that people have no idea. Like people don't mm. know you know, if someone goes to church and they and they gambled their last hundred bucks the day before, like nobody knows, mm-hmm. um, you know, pornography is kind of another hidden one. Can you see it in somebody's countenance? I guess if you're pretty intuitive. Um, now, but even not, there, even not. There are some people. Sometimes like there, not. Yeah. yeah, there are some people who are really good at uh, like, what do you call it? Disassociation or compartmentalization who, who like they don't even think. I mean. Um, it's, it's surprising sometimes, like when, when you're talking to people who are addicts, who like, like some of my, it's, it's so crazy. A couple of the people I know who I find out that they've, they've dealt with, uh, not pornography addiction necessarily, but, but sex addiction, like really hard sex addiction. Last person you would have ever thought just based on how they deal. I mean, they're really good at hiding it. Scary, but that, that adds to that thing, right? That adds to that thing of of like the making you feel like you're you're out of place, right? Because other everybody else is so good at hiding it. You know what I mean? Right, right. And and I think I, I mean this is why I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like mm. Christ went to the the poor, the needy, the the homeless, the I mean like the addicts, the sinners. Like if we are truly confronting our ego which is wanting to like elevate ourselves over everybody else and all of their dumb problems and not acknowledge our own problems. If, if we can get to this place 
where we just love people, we love ourselves, flaws and all, and we're working to improve ourselves, and we're willing to hug somebody that like clearly is in bad shape, or or you know, it, it smells like they they smoked a pack. I'm not super turned off by cigarette smoke because I spent so much time in casinos. So for me, you know, maybe uh, some people can't stand it. You know, like my 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 wife has like kind of some weird allergies around smell. Um, mm. You know, so I understand for some people there there might be some other issues going on, but it doesn't bother me. I'll shake your hand. I'll give you a hug. Like I I don't care. Um, but it not and and that's not to say that I'm great. It just doesn't bother me. Um, but I think that that place, that Christ-like place, accepts everybody and doesn't care, because yeah. that is our job. Our role is to love everyone as we love ourselves. And well, and if we could somehow create that. I don't know exactly how to create that because we're all on our own journey and we're not perfect. But if we can somehow create some semblance of that, then perhaps, you know, people can come in and just be okay with the fact that, hey, you know what, I screwed up today or yesterday or whenever it was. Um, I don't know if I can take the sacrament or not. Maybe everybody else is wonderful and I'm feeling like I'm trash. But seeing a smiling face, there was a guy in, in the ward that I was in before they changed the ward. There was a few, but one guy in particular, man, I was in terrible shape. And this dude had a big smile on his face and shook my hand every time he saw me. And I was like, I was like, what is with this guy? Like, like, it's like he likes me. I don't even like myself. Like, if you knew me, you wouldn't like me. So I'm like looking for people to like confirm to me. Oh, yeah, stay away from us. Because, yeah, I don't think you're 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 not the guy we really want around us. But it was just so interesting to have that experience every Sunday. And as I started to get better, I started to really appreciate like those outgoing people that like just didn't seem to care. They're just like, hey, it's nice to see you. Like I'm trying to do better at that. I'm I've always been really bad at that. Um, mm-hmm. but because of my my own anxiety. Um, but but man, I appreciated that a lot. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny you bring this up because I I don't know what it is, because if you look at the core of the gospel, that's exactly what we should be doing. But there's something and it's not it's not exclusive to the to our faith. It's not exclusive to Mormonism. It's in Christianity everywhere. And and I'm sure in every faith where there's like this there's this weird like us versus them kind of mentality, uh, especially, you know, in, in these high demand religions that believe they are the true gospel where you have this us versus them thing. And, uh, and we have this whole idea of like, well, we're, we're in the world, but not of the world that like kind of makes us, we're a peculiar people. So we kind of separate and, um, it kind of drives me a little, a little nuts when like, I, I've been involved with missionary programs for a lot of my adult life. And, and you talk to members and like, well, all my friends are members and you're like, well, that's a problem. You know what I mean? And, right. and, yeah. and, it, and, and so, but if you look like my favorite story in the Bible is, is uh, the woman caught in adultery who was brought to Jesus when, you know, she comes and for those who aren't Christian, I'll just share the, or, or don't know the Bible, I'll share the story. So in Jewish law, if a woman was was found to be an adulterer, she was stoned to death. And one day the Pharisees actually caught a woman in adultery in the very act of it, like caught her while she was cheating. And they'd bring her to Jesus and they say, they even kind of insultingly say, Rabbi, Master, right? Like, here's this woman, she was caught in adultery, caught in the very act. And the law says that we should stone her. What do you say? 
and he uh you know starts drawing in the sand and they keep pushing him and he stands up and he says let he is without sin cast the first stone at her and and that's not i don't think that's the most interesting part actually i think the most interesting part is what happened after the fact because everyone remembers that but what happened after that is everybody left because they all were awakened to their own sins and left and then the woman comes to jesus and said and he says where are thine accusers and she says none none accuse me and he goes neither do i go thy way and sin no more which i think is so profound because it's not like jesus condoned it right he doesn't say like you're good right you know that was not a big deal but at the same he tells her don't do it anymore but he didn't condemn her and i think that's where we we need to be because i think a lot of people do feel condemned especially when they get caught in some you know what I mean? Like they get caught in something they knew they shouldn't do and they feel shame and they walk into that room and they see all those people and they don't know who knows. They don't know who doesn't know. And, you know, um, and then people are whispering and talking and, and you got they got a couple at least of those people, you know, who, who are the you know who they are in your ward who you don't want to tell them your business. You know what I mean? And right. Yeah. And. And it, it just, it would do so much good for people. I mean, realistically, by the numbers, what are the percentages? I mean, you've been involved in the addiction recovery program in the church. What, what is the percentage of members who are dealing with porn addiction? Do you know the numbers? I don't know the numbers. At one point, they had some numbers. This was years ago, um, where something like, a hundred percent of all young men by the age of 18 will and maybe this is actually not church related will have will have seen you know been exposed to pornography i think at one time i had heard something like um 90 oh, maybe it's not that high 60 percent of of people in elders quorum back when they had the split between high priests and, and elders quorum something like 50 or 60 percent would view pornography at least monthly or something yeah so that's what i had heard that too i'd heard 50 okay I'd heard fifty okay. percent, and I didn't see a study. I just heard that anecdotally, and I think a training yeah. or something. But when you yeah. think about that, that means someone on your right or your left is dealing with porn addiction, right? You know what I right. mean? And and add that with people who maybe are struggling with LGBT issues, or uh, or somebody who is dealing with a with a bad marriage, or somebody who's dealing with financial issues or abuse, you know. The likelihood is, is that most of the people in the in those rooms, and I, and I only say this not because I'm trying to suggest that that members are bad people, you know. What what I'm saying is, is that like we need to stop this idea that like if you've sinned in a certain way, you are somehow worse than everybody else. Do you know what I mean? Like we kind of have this almost like a hierarchy of sin in the church where it's like, if you're dealing with a sex addiction or, or some sexual sin, that's close to murder, you know, like, you know, and you're like, Oh, okay. So I'm almost basically a murderer. Now I should probably not be here. I really think that that is, that is counterproductive to the concept of bringing people to, to Christ. Um, yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. I, I was done. I was done. Okay. I think that there, there, there is some potential explanations here uh, in the brain. 
So one of the things that is really interesting is the in-group bias, where, mm -hmm. where we see people similar to ourselves and we want to mm -hmm. elevate them because we want to elevate, you know, that also elevates us. Mm. Um, which also means that that we will find ways to discount or lower people that don't fall in that group. Mm. Um, another interesting thing is our disgust mechanism in the brain is is um, there's a few areas that are kind of connected, but the insula is seems to be where it is largely uh, happening. And one of the fascinating things about the insula is it can be conditioned like other parts of our brain. So, for example, if you're raised in and your your parents are filthy and you just like just can't stand it. So so you're like, I, I just want to be cleaner. And then you become very clean. One of the interesting things about the brain, the insula started as a physical mechanism. And what that means is, is if you eat something that tastes disgusting to you, it's th there's a possibility that there's poison there. And so the, the body, you will have this physical effect of throwing up. Mm -hmm. um, the insula also has a moral portion to it like uh, animals have insulas too but you know as far as we know they don't have like the, the moral piece doesn't exist so so what we have to understand is our the more let's say using this cl this cleanliness example the more clean we become the more our insula is going to be conditioned to liking cleanliness and disliking filthiness so we are now fighting with our brain's natural adjustment so if somebody comes in off the street into church and they're a mess, you know, we know what Christ would do. He would go put his arm around them and, and you know, and treat them like the, the child of God that they are. The cleaner we are, the more we're going to have to fight our own disgust upon seeing that, which is so interesting that our brain does that. So, so God's like, be clean. Okay, got it. But also be Christ-like, which go put your arm around the, the unclean person. And it's like, brain is like exploding. That's not what I do. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't care what you do. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is running counter to some of the ways that your brain has been programmed. So God gives us this, this mind or this brain that operates this way and then tells us you got to do diff stuff differently than what it tells you to do. Man, you know, that's so interesting. And in, in going into this religious discussion about this, that uh, the more I have these conversations with mental health professionals, and uh and different you know doctors and things of that nature the more i realize how profound the scripture was that talks about putting off the natural man because the natural man is prone to negativity prone to these things that result in addiction and it really kind of opens up this idea of like the ten commandments or like these rules that we have how they're not really limiting you know like they're they're actually there to help you be put in the best position to have the most fulfilling life possible. Yeah, you may be restricted that you can't, you know, you can't drink or you can't, you know, do this or that. But man, like you really avoid a lot of problems and it really optimizes your brain, you know, to not have those things. In your so so tell me now, uh, so you're you're dealing with these addictions. While you're dating your wife, did she know you were dealing with any of these before you got married? Um, yeah, and I think that because she was not, when we met, she was not active. So her mm. her moral system and my moral system at the time were more in alignment. Ah. Um, mm -hmm. So she didn't really care that much. Um, 
I kind of made a decision that I wanted to kick these things and get back into church. So I'm, you know, we got married, we made a push to get more active in, in the church. Um, that was the time that I was able to finally let alcohol go. Um, of course, gambling probably got worse and pornography mm -hmm. was, is, you know, was still, I, for me, my experience with it, it was just, it was just up and down consistently. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so the, that was, you know, depended on the week, how that was. Mm -hmm. Um, but for her, she didn't like the pornography. That was clearly a violation of our relationship norms and values. Um, and she did not like the gambling and you, I mean that, which makes perfect sense. Like mm -hmm. relationships don't need financial problems on top of the other challenges that come with, with relationships. So I, I was really putting our relationship as a deficit from the get-go, um, which is it a surprise now looking back that it failed? No, like I, maybe it would have failed even if I had not done these things, but holy cow, did I really set that thing up for failure. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. And this is, let me just say, I appreciate what you're saying here and that you're owning your piece of the relationship, like why it failed. A lot of people don't do that. So I really appreciate that you do that. But it's really interesting, like, the the, um, the struggles that you have when you're dealing with a bad relationship like that, where, like, it almost makes you kind of wish that, like, like, if you did something bad, but, like, the, th the marriage was going to fail anyway, you almost just kind of like wish that you never did it. So that, that way, like, if I just hadn't done that, they'd have nothing on me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know what yeah. I mean? It was like, it yeah. would not be, it couldn't say it was my fault at all. You know, and it's just, it's just so funny because I, you know, we all, I think we all deal with that. We're so hard on ourselves. And, uh, but I appreciate that you're owning your piece. As you're dealing with this though, were there other things you know, going on in the marriage that you felt were, were like, was this the stressor that was kind of the, was, was feeding the addictions or what do you think it was that was feeding those addictions? Yeah, that's a pretty good question. I think at that point, you know, addictions can kind of become like the sun where the, the sun is the energy that, you know, it's use it's producing the fuel that keeps the fire going, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the shame around the addiction is the fuel that keeps the addiction going. Um, and you know, there was a time for her, I think she got kind of burnt out. Like she was trying to be caring and trying to be supportive and trying to be helpful. And it just got to a point where the progress just wasn't there. And so she was, mm -hmm. you know, became frustrated and, and, and so when someone exp experiences burnout, you know, compassion, fatigue, like they just don't have the energy to put into somebody's addiction that they've been trying to help them with for years and years and years, and it's not getting better. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't fault her for that. Um, I I do think that, especially when I was, I, I probably have always been a little bit immature. Um, that adding the addiction on top of it exacerbated it. Um, I don't, there was a lot of things I can look back on. And it's funny at the time, like like you're saying, well, I appreciate you mentioning where you went wrong and and owning that. Well, I, I didn't really want to own that at first, and so mm. it it's taken me a while to be like, I got to stop 
like I, I've got to own my stuff or I'm, I'm not going to improve myself because if I keep conducting relationships like I have been, none of them are going to work. Um, so that was a process for me to get to that point even. Mm -hmm. Wow. How long um, did the marriage last? It was about seven and a half, eight years, um, which I think is kind of kind of that trigger point for a lot of people. Like yeah. if they get past that, uh, the likelihood of success, I believe, goes up if, if some of the charts I've seen in the past. But that seems to be right around that time where a lot of them uh, that don't work out kind of fall apart. Mm. And what was it uh, ultimately that was the final straw or the catalyst that kind of ended the relationship? Um, doing my best not to throw anyone under the bus. Um, I will try to be as uh, diplomatic here as I can. Um, I, I just, I think due to her burnout, um, she was looking for support and, um, and someone else entered her life that she developed a strong friendship with and that was available. And, um, and I think for her, based on the direction of how things were going, that looked a lot more attractive. And, and so, you know, and, and I get it, you know, it, it made sense at the time for her. It, so she left me to to go date someone else and and that ended up not working out but um that that i think i think she needed somebody to be there for her and i i couldn't i chose not to i couldn't the wrong word i chose not to i chose to put my energy into my addictions and other things and and not in her um and so she found someone that will, was willing to so mm. you know i get it wow um, I got to imagine there's some resentment there, though, or at least there was. Um, there was, there was, but that was also, you know, my ego not wanting to own my behaviors contributed. Like, like we're not islands. Like we're social beings. Like you don't get mm -hmm. married to be alone. You get married to like, you know, be with someone. And I, I couldn't. I was choosing not to be with her. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I don't know, maybe this is just my own my own experience and trauma, but I just, you know, uh, I got to imagine that component of it is is difficult even though it sounds like you've kind of you've definitely taken ownership of it. It's it's hard to accept that like uh, you know, those vows were taken and you know, they were violated. You know what I mean? And and uh but anyhow, Looking back now, um, now that you're divorced, uh, do you, are you, are you happier that you're like, do you go back and go, I'm glad I'm out of that relationship? Do you have some regret saying, man, I wish I would have done things differently? Oh, so this is a really complicated question. Sure. Um, I am so happy. Um, I'm remarried and I'm, I'm, incredibly happy with my wife now she's wonderful um i think she really helped me with some of my attachment problems which i think helped me get through kind of kick the the remaining addiction stuff that was kind of haunting me so so i'm incredibly grateful for that i think my ex probably did me a favor by leaving me and and um and so in hindsight am i happy 
happier? Yes, I am. But mm -hmm. I think I'm happier because I've made different decisions. Um, mm -hmm. Do outside things like people and stuff give us momentary happiness? Sure. Um, but ultimately, I believe it's mostly up to us, and I'm living a very different way. I'm, I'm a very different person now than I was 10, 12 years ago. So, you know, I, I think it still boils down to me changing that was going to mm -hmm. allow me to be happy, you know, instead mm -hmm. of seeking these other means of happiness, which were, they, they, could, they can't deliver happiness. So. Sure. So it sounds like what you're saying is, is you're really happy and you're happy in your new relationship. But who knows if you were this person, if she were to stick around, you became this person, you might still be happier even with her. You just don't know that. You don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. It's always hard. It's always hard. You know, regret is a hard thing. You know what I mean? Because like, uh, I heard a, a little reel that Anthony Hopkins did where he's like, Oh, I don't have time for regret. No, you don't regret anything because it's who I am. And I'm like, well, maybe, you know what I mean? But at the same time, you know, like you, you, it, you're right. There's no utility in looking back and saying, man, if I would have done things differently, maybe things would, cause it's just not in the cards. You don't have a time machine, but at the same time, I think regret is a little bit helpful because it tells you you don't want to make those same mistakes again. You know? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I don't understand the I wouldn't do anything different thing. Like, mm -hmm. I, I I can't relate to that because of so many of the decisions that I make. I mean, to be honest, the people that suffered the most in my divorce was our kids. We had two yeah. kids, and they're still feeling the effects, and I can still see you know, challenges that they're facing in their life because of the divorce and some of the fallout of it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, it impacts multiple people besides the people just going through it. So perhaps you can tell me that you have a very different um, experience here because you are a blended family within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? So, and even though I think divorce is getting probably a little more prevalent now in the church. Um, it's still relatively more rare than say uh, outside of the church, I think. I don't know the numbers. Um, what is it like to be, for you, to be a blended family remarried um, uh, within the, the confines of the church? Is it difficult? Do you find it you know, you feel like sometimes you're a little kind of, uh, you know, you're outside the box. Like, how does that work for you? You know, that's a good question. Um, it never really bothered me. I think it was um, maybe a little bit more different for my wife. Maybe it was a little bit more of an adjustment. Um, I I think that I always wanted um I've always wanted a relationship, like a healthy relationship. I, I've always desired that. So like all of the other components that come with it that might be challenging, I, I never really considered as as a deterrent to doing that. Um, do does, does it create some things that are complicated internally? 100%. Um, internally within the family system, I mean, um, at, you know, and internally for each, my wife and I and the kids too. Um, there's, there's definitely some, um, some challenges when it comes to um, 
like like rearing and decision making is a, is kind of a problem um, for it's so interesting how when you're with a child for years and years and years like you just you want to believe in the best in them and you've seen them when they're tiny and innocent and and you know and in the moment where you're mad at them you can reflect on that like so are you a little bit more uh forgiving than than the other parent who's only known them for the last couple of years and is like, whew, this kid's a bit much. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes a difference. So That's, I see it a lot more in those things as opposed to like how it manifests in kind of church life. Well, and it's it's one of those things where you're like, I got to imagine like you've got your kids and then her kids. You have a child together, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you're a yours, mine, and ours situation. And like you're in your kids, I got to imagine you're the primary discipliner and, and things of that nature. With her kids, she's the primary discipliner. Then you got this kid that you're dealing with together. Then you got exes who you got to deal with. And then they might have significant others that you got to deal with. And then how your kids deal with their new kids and all their stuff. It's just like, that sounds exhausting, <laughs> you know? It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But how do you, how do you successfully manage that? I mean, you, you'd be like, we don't, you know, I don't know. But like, you know, how, how do you, you know, how, how do you uh, figure that out? Yeah, it's really hard. We do the best we can. Um, our humanness gets in the way. So, so emotions are not always rational. They sometimes are driven by what we ultimately really want, but we're not, it's not always in our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And, and so you have to be willing to set your emotions aside. Like, so, so for example, you know, her child might do something that I'm like up in arms about, but that's not really a much of an issue for her. And, and so we have to kind of talk through it. And then I have to accept like, Hey, I think I would have dealt with this differently, but it's not my child. And, mm-hmm. and so I have to just be okay with, you know, what she chooses to do. Uh, you know, part of this really can become a problem if you're really codependent, for example, with, with another person and you need them to do everything, um, in order to validate you and they're not parenting in the way that you would parent that can create a lot of problems for people. So you have to let go of all that stuff because I don't know how the relationship works. You'd just be miserable if, if you needed them to do everything you wanted them to do and, and that doesn't feel authentic for them. So it's, it's a lot of leaning into that discomfort, which you mentioned earlier and, and just, you know, reminding yourself, Hey, we're together. We love each other. The kids are going to be here temporarily. We deal with things differently, you know, by my love for this person supersedes any decisions that we had. The, the big things when it comes to parenting, we agree on the little things are just little things like and you just have to let them just be. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Now, um, do you feel um, when you're at church, does it uh, I don't know how to, to describe it. Do you feel as though you're different than everybody else or do you feel you're OK? Like it's just everything's fine. Feel OK. I, I feel okay. Am, am I different? Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm a little different as a person, I think, anyway. Um, and, and maybe everybody feels that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I only know what it, likes, it feels like to be me. But, but I feel okay. And I think it's, be, again, because like I, I believe I'm making better decisions. 
and I feel comfortable with the direction of my life. It's not perfect, but I think I'm trending a, a healthy direction. Yeah, on that, you know, it's interesting because I had a conversation with a couple of friends of mine. One's this, uh, an institute teacher. The other one works for the church. And we were addressing, I got a listener question about dealing with faith crisis and feeling like they don't fit in. And uh, it was my friends, Tim Wild and, um, and Lance Carlisle. And Lance, who works for the church, he, he said something pretty interesting. He said, you know, um, I think we all think that there's like this cookie cutter mold of what a member of the church is supposed to look like. And there's like a core group of those people that kind of run things around the church. Like I, we used to joke when I was in, I was in a very small ward. And uh, when I was in like the elders quorum presidency and executive, I, executive secretary for a bishop and they should joke, like, I'm just the only one left, you know, so that's why they're, you know, picking me. But, but um, we used to joke there's like there's like ten people in every ward that run the whole ward. They just are the high functioning people or whatever. So he said everybody thinks there's like this group of people within the church who kind of run everything, and then everybody else is kind of fringe and they just don't really fit in. And he's like, but the thing is, is when you talk to the people who are in that core group, they all feel like they don't fit in either. You know what I mean? Like. I think that's something that everybody goes through. And I think that probably has to do with what we were talking about earlier. We know our own sins, our own imperfections. We look at everybody else and everybody else seemingly looks like they're doing okay. Um, or maybe somebody, you know, gets up and, and does a really good job of teaching a lesson at church or gives a great talk or, you know, works with the youth and seems like they're super high functioning and they can't do that. But every single one of those people has have problems. So None of us really look the same. So, so, so now tell me now that you're, 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 three, you said three and a half years sober from everything. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you feel different? How do you feel about life? You know, what, what changes have you seen since sobriety? Um, I, I do feel very different. Um, I, I feel like I'm a lot, I, I see myself as more confident. Um, I feel encouraged uh, about the future. Um, I I notice that internally, I don't have this resentment towards myself that probably mm. projected all over the place in the mm. past. Um, again, acknowledging that I am not perfect, but the direction of my life is comfortable. And, and, and when I say comfortable, I am also acknowledging there that, that my belief about change is, is it's naturally difficult, mm. um, but I'm more okay with the difficulty of change. I'm okay with failing with, you know, if I try and I fail, I can accept that now. Whereas before it was just further evidence that everything I do fails. And I was just so unwilling to try new things, try difficult mm. things. So, so it has kind of created this landscape for me where life is suddenly a lot less intimidating and suddenly mm -hmm. a lot more interesting. Um, and, and I just, I really do see myself as a really different person. Mm. Do you worry about relapse? Um, on occasion, I mean, I might get triggered for some particular reason. Sometimes it's obvious to me why, and sometimes it's not. I mean, 
Like, holy cow. Instagram and Facebook is a minefield of just, <laughs> like, to my, maybe there's pornography on there, I don't know, but, but like, you, you just, you spend more than a minute scrolling, and you get past what everybody's updates are, and next thing you know, you've got, you know, a picture of, of somebody in a very suggestive um, outfit. And, and I think that it probably catches a lot of eyes, so, so maybe that's why it's there. Um, people might interact with it, but it, it can be a pretty big trigger for someone that has lived that way for a long time. So, you know, you just you have to set things down and kind of realize where your limits are. You, you still, you have to keep the rules, you know, don't take the phone in your bathroom. Don't, don't be alone with it. You know, don't, um, be careful about, you know, if you're, if you're bored, make sure you have plenty of things on your docket to do, because when you get bored, that's when, when you might start feeling. So, so you have to kind of structure your life in such a way that, that you take out all the possible triggers and then just deal with the ones that pop up that you can't control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're so right about that Instagram and Facebook stuff. I don't know how many times I've been like friended by or whatever, followed or whatever by some like bot. And I'm like, who is that? And I click on it and it's like, subscribe to my OnlyFans, you know? And I'm like, oh, it's just like, geez, you know what I mean? Like it's, you're right. It's a minefield there to just, um, and that's what's so scary about kids these days, you know, is that like, they're all on there. The brains aren't developed. They're right in that spot where they can catch one of these addictions. And it's just everywhere. Like the, the porn addiction and the overeating addiction, I think to me are the scariest, you know, of all of these. Because it's like, yeah, it's real. It, for me, drugs, it's, just don't touch them. You know what I mean? Like gambling, just don't ever do it. You got to eat. You got to eat. And then you can't avoid this stuff. I mean, it's everywhere. And um, and I think it's only going to get worse. So it's it's really hard to get past those things. And I've seen the devastation. And you're a success story. You know, you, you've been able to get out. I mean, it's really impressive that you had all of these things and you were able to make it out of there. And I hope you realize that. I hope that you are a success story. I hope you understand that. Well, I'm looking at this as the opportunity to, to be a success. I feel good about where I'm at now. But but my future is not yet written. You know, maybe God knows it, but I don't know it. So mm-hmm. so that's why like I have to I have to stay vigilant. Um, there's a saying you might hear sometimes in twelve step groups. Um, no matter how far down the road you drive, you're still the same distance from the ditch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one bad step and holy cow, you just never know. So you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta be careful. Take it a day at a time and and do what you got to do every day to to keep your sobriety and and you know prioritize it so yeah and how and real quick well i know you gotta gotta get going um like i said we could talk i think we could talk for days on this stuff um yeah but but if uh where are some resources for people who want to start the recovery process what would you recommend people look for Sure. I like 12 step groups um, because of my bias. And and so you can look those up and they have them for all sorts of different types of things. Um, and, and after COVID, a lot of them went virtual. So you don't even have to leave your home. If you want to be in person, you can probably, especially if you're in a larger city, you can almost certainly find something nearby. Um, 
there's uh for for people that are members of the church on the tools they have like an addiction um you can i think search it up and it, and it has like a, a whole series of information about addiction recovery um it also has um things specific to say pornography addiction um you can always reach out to a a church leader uh, and and i always in, gently encourage uh, my clients that are religious to to seek out some some help. Hopefully, the religious leader is you know positive and willing to help. I, I there's always that fear in me that they, they're going to have their feelings and it's going to be obvious to the person. Um, mm -hmm. But I got a lot of help and support from those people. Um, it's hit and miss about opening up to loved ones. You know, it's very emotional. If you have a close friend that you trust. Um, that might be a good way to go. I do think that we have to start to figure out how to open up about these things. Um, but it's scary. It's vulnerable. You don't know how they're going to react. And, and so a lot of these steps do bring a certain amount of terror. And then, of course, your brain doesn't want to give these things up. It's looking at these things as, as a critical part of your survival strategy. It, you know, it's like I, I don't want to learn to lean into my discomfort. I, I want to have my beer or I want to, you know, have my substance or my behavior, whatever it is, because that I don't have to do much work. And I did that helps me feel better in the moment. So, yeah. yeah, we're fighting with ourselves. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, doing doing those things, going to a 12 step program, talking to uh, talking to a professional, a close friend, you got to get it out there. You know, you gotta, you gotta face it. Um, and facing it alone is not going to help you, you know, um, it's just going to isolate you. And, uh, mm -hmm. and that's, uh, that's not a good place, you know? So now if somebody wanted to come and talk to you specifically, um, where can they find you? Um, so I have, um, I have like a psychology today profile. So if they go on psychology today and look up Nate Christensen, um, they could find me. My wife and I actually do have a small podcast. We're delayed on. Uh, we haven't put one out in a little while um, called working change. And we have an email working change coaching at gmail.com. So those are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. If they're familiar with Tony Overbay and they wanted to reach out to me, they can get in contact directly with him and he can connect us. Um, he's got a website. I think it's tonyoverbay.com. Um, so those are probably the easiest ways. Once I get licensed, I'll put a website up and it probably get a little bit easier to find sure. me. But right now you have to probably do a little bit of digging to get to me. Nice. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and sharing what you know about addiction. Hopefully somebody who's listening has, um, either learn a little bit about themselves or maybe it'll help them get started on their road to recovery. Um, so I appreciate everybody who's been listening. Uh, this is the end of part two and, uh, you know, subscribe. Uh, we got, we still got a lot of, we got, I still got a lot of interesting ones coming up. Um, I've, I've done, uh, we've got a motivational speaker coming up. I'm actually working on somebody who, who does work is a sex worker. So we'll see if that, how that plays out. Very interested in hearing, hearing her story. And, uh, um, and I got, of course I got more wrestlers and I got more Mormons coming. So we got all sorts of, we got all sorts of fun stuff to talk about. So keep, uh, keep in tune and Nate, thanks for coming in and, uh, and, uh, we'll talk to you again soon.
Okay. All right. Thanks, Josh.